Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Sean the Baptist Live for Wednesday, May 19th. We are in that beautiful time in between the Ascension and Pentecost. I mentioned on the, the show last week, talking about the, the original novena, nine days of prayer. Nov, the N-O-V part of novena is, is nine in, in the Latin prefix. And so we know that Jesus uh, ascended into heaven 40 days after the resurrection, which would be Thursday of last week. And then for nine days, the apostles gathered with Mary to, to pray and do as Jesus commanded to wait for the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And of course, that event is what we're looking forward to this weekend, the Solemnity of Pentecost, the celebration of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, upon the apostles uh, at uh, that beautiful upper room where if you go to uh, Jerusalem, this uh, modern times, uh, it's not the original, original room, but it's it's built on the same spot. But to think that uh, that that upper room where Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with his apostles, where they they gathered in fear after the crucifixion, where Jesus walked through walls and came to meet them, risen from the dead, is also the room presumably where they gathered and the Holy Spirit fell as tongues of fire. Quite uh, quite the room, and uh, I can tell you I've I've been there multiple times and. It, of course, would also be the room, since it's the room of the Last Supper, where Jesus ordained the first priests, uh, so it has a, a special significance there. But tonight, uh, we are going to be talking uh, all about the Spirit. And uh, there are lots of questions, I think, that, that come up uh, about uh, the Holy Spirit. And so if you've got yours, uh, do feel free to, to share those. Uh, I see some of our regulars jumping on here. Mark Gilstrap is on from St. Pat's. Good to have you on again, Mark. Um one thing, uh, a little while ago, Facebook kind of changed the way that uh, connections are, are made uh, amongst the uh, pages and such. So I, I invite you, if you've not already done so, uh, make sure that you are a follower of the Sean the Baptist page. You should be able to just like hover over one of the Sean the Baptist links in my comment there and make sure you click follow uh, if you haven't already done so. Uh, that's how I, I know that you're on board and uh, that I can get messages to you, which is going to be important because in a couple weeks, uh, I'm, I'm headed to Philmont Scott Ranch in New Mexico, and I am, I'm going to be spending all of June there as a, a chaplain, as I've done before. And so who knows when I might go live? I might be in the, the middle of the backcountry by a stream. I might be with a, an, a, you know, a deer or something. I might be on top of a mountain, and I might just say, hey, I think I'll go live. And and you could know about it if you if you follow me. So uh, we got uh, Nicholas Cokes on. Very good. Good to have uh, Nicholas on tonight, uh, and others joining Sean the Baptist. Um, I'm across a couple pages here, so I've I've got you on uh, both the St. Patrick page and the Sean the Baptist page. So um, feel free to to join in. And uh, we're talking about the Holy Spirit tonight. So questions that you would have about the Holy Spirit are most welcome tonight because, well, quite frankly, the Holy Spirit can get a bit confusing, can it? Uh, he's the third person of the Holy Trinity, but uh, not tangible, doesn't have a body. Uh, how, do we, how do we really know uh, what the Holy Spirit is like? Do you have a relationship with the Holy Spirit? And how do you, how do you have a relationship with a non-tangible entity that has no, no body and that you can't see? Not the easiest thing. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. Hey, uh, Aaron Coleman's on, so thanks for tuning in. First time for the Coleman family. Well, good to have you on. Look at that. First time viewers tonight. So welcome to Sean the Baptist Live, where we, we try to bring some uh, community together to, to share our faith and share some of the, the joys and sorrows of COVID. This show was born out of the lockdown, and of course now we're starting to come out of hiding. So how's that going for you? Uh, just as the early church was kind of hiding in that upper room out of fear, uh, at Pentecost, they came out. They got to spill onto the streets. And so I'm, I'm kind of hoping something like that can take place for us, too, uh, that uh, we can come out of hiding. You know, we got vaccines out there, and if you want to talk vaccines, we can maybe talk a little bit about that, too, sometime. Uh, but I am fully vaccinated, so you are free to watch this show without a mask on. Uh, I am uh, doing the show without a mask, flaunting my fully vaccinated status, uh, which I... 
sometimes do even in public now. So it's kind of nice. Uh, so, uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, as I mentioned, we are in that in-between time between Ascension and Pentecost. So, a little recap. Uh, Jesus ascends to heaven. And, of course, that is the end of his, his bodily presence on earth. Now, of course, the Eucharist, we know, is his body, blood, soul, and divinity, but that's a, that's a sacramental presence, which is a whole different kind of uh, theology. But as far as Jesus as a human being on this earth, the same way you and I are on this earth, that, that ended at Ascension. And I invite you to go back and, and check out the, the homily from this last Sunday, which was, was all about uh, Jesus's presence uh, and the Ascension. And uh, uh, by the way, if you don't know, I've, I've got uh, multiple podcasts. So if you are checking out this, this video live tonight, just know that there is also uh, the oldest podcast in the Sean the Baptist Network, and that is the Homily Podcast. Every Sunday, um, you can go. All of this can be found on seanthebaptist.org. So go check that out. But so Jesus ascends to heaven, and I always thought, you know, is this a sad kind of moment? I mean, Jesus is leaving, right? Well, I, I talked about this last week on the show and also this Sunday, but as we transition in to look at, at Pentecost, realize that Jesus actually says that when he's ascending, it's like, it is actually better for you that I go. Now, that's astounding to me because I, I'm one that, like, I, if I could be one place, or what would that be like? I'm like, I, well, I'd want to be with Jesus, right? When he was walking, talking this earth, like, that, that would be the thing to do because I would be as close to Jesus as possible, right? I mean, the apostles— you know, invoking my Boy Scout side, they got they got to camp basically with Jesus for for three years, uh, spent forty days with them, raised from the dead. I mean, that's got to be the greatest thing in the world, right? Jesus actually says no. <laughs> he actually says it. Actually, it will be better for you that I leave. How can that be? Well, the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, if I go, I will send you the Holy Spirit to be with you always. He will teach you all things. And behold, I am with you always. Now, now this is a, a little bit, put your theology hat on, but the Trinity, the three persons and the one God it is one. So really, you can't have the, the presence of one person of the Trinity without the others, because they're, they're one. So if Jesus says, I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to, to dwell with you, that means Jesus is with us. It's his Spirit. So just like Jesus is really inside us when we receive the Eucharist, Jesus is really inside us from the moment of our baptism in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that might be news to some people. Uh, we're going to talk about confirmation tonight and, and baptism, but, you know, if you ask some people, well, when, when do you receive the Holy Spirit? I, I think, sadly, a lot of people would say, well, you know, uh, confirmation, right? Confirmation, that's the sacrament of the Holy Spirit. So you get the Holy Spirit when you get confirmation. Uh, no, no. I mean, yes, you do get the Spirit, but that's not when you first get the Spirit. I mean, imagine if you're a, a Christian your, your whole life and you don't get the Holy Spirit till you're confirmed, especially as long as we delay it now, and we'll, we'll talk about that delay. Uh, no, when do you get the Holy Spirit? Baptism. In fact, the whole notion of original sin uh, is not so much that the presence, certainly of any personal guilt, how could a little how could a little baby be born with personal guilt? Can't, can't sin. Original sin is more like a, a deprivation of something that should be there, something that's missing. And that, that something that is missing is the Holy Spirit. A little cute baby, cute and cuddly as a little baby is, uh, does not yet have the indwelling of God. And the Holy Spirit does not dwell in a newborn baby. And that, I, I don't know, that may blow some people's minds. Like, we, we almost default today to think that somehow people are naturally born in union with God. And, you know, like we just have to do something to wreck that or, you know, we're all basically just going to heaven. No, uh, there, there is very much a part of our, our rites of baptism where we, we recognize that we actually do an exorcism over the child. You know, it's not a big major exorcism like someone possessed by a demon, but there's, there's a recognition in the rite of baptism of taking a child from the natural order, which, without God's intervention, has been given over to Satan, taking a, a child out of that natural order and, and putting them firmly in the, the order of God, into the realm of God. It, it is the most important thing that happens in your whole life. I mean, John Paul II famously said his 
day of baptism was the most important day in his life. And that, that's really true of all of us. Because without baptism, we don't have the Holy Spirit and we don't have friendship with God. We're also not as united to our, our brothers and sisters. Which, by the way, you, you, can't, you can't call non-baptized people brother and sister. Not, not in Christ, anyway, not in God. I mean, we're, we're all created by God, but that, that doesn't make us related in any other way than we, we share the same biology. Baptism in the adoption by God actually makes us brothers and sisters because it makes us sons and daughters of God. That, that's not our normal condition. God actually has to intervene to do that, and he intervenes through the sacrament of baptism and, and gives us something that we, we didn't have before, namely his divine life. To think about, you are, we say, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. You know, sometimes you hear that language. Literally, God dwells in you. And that begins at baptism. So we're going to talk tonight a little bit about how baptism and confirmation and Eucharist are all the, the three sacraments of initiation. And uh, there's a lot of debate out there right now because, of course, you know, uh, currently in the Catholic practice, often confirmation is delayed long after baptism until maybe like eighth grade or even high school. Um, it's kind of the confirmation season right now, so uh, it's on people's minds. What does the sacrament of confirmation do, Father Sean? If, if we get the Holy Spirit in baptism, what's this whole sacrament of confirmation thing about? Well, glad you asked. Well, we'll talk about that tonight. Uh, so uh, welcome uh, to those joining now. We see we got Lisa on as uh, a regular on the show. And so if you've got questions about baptism, confirmation, how they're related, what's up with the Holy Spirit, feel free to put your questions there uh, in the comments. And I do see those in real time. So I'll be, I'll be happy to get to those. So I, I mentioned that um, this gift of the Holy Spirit at baptism, it gives us real power to, to live as, as children of God. So it's like, think of the temple in Jerusalem. It's just a building until the, the Spirit of God comes and dwells in it. Likewise, you and I, we're, we're just maybe nice human beings until we get taken over by God. I mean, everyone likes like those exorcism kind of movies. When I was a high school chaplain, all the kids, they always wanted to know about exorcism. They, they wanted to know about gay marriage and exorcism. Those, I, I, those are the two big questions I got a lot as a high school chaplain. Uh, because there's something about exorcism, like they see the, the movies, um, and they want to know, like, is that real? And uh, some people watch the movie The Exorcist, and like, woo, that's kind of freaky, and it's entertaining. I tell you, watching the movie The Exorcist for the first time freaked me out. Couldn't sleep for days. Had to get a statue of St. Michael and put it next to my bed. Because people think, oh, that, that stuff's entertaining, and, uh, you know, heads spinning around and vomiting and all that. That's not, that really happens. People don't realize that's real, real stuff going on right there. I've got friends who are exorcists. And, you know, I ask, like, that stuff in the movies, that actually happened? You see that stuff? Yeah, all of it. I mean, one person said, other than the head spinning completely around, that I haven't seen. Everything else, yeah, seen it. It's all real. In fact, one of, one of the priests I, I know that is an exorcist, um... One of my go-to kind of phrases that I look at all the time when I'm, I'm feeling down a little bit and I'm doubting my faith, uh, he's like, it's all real. It's all real. <laughs> Angels, demons, saints, intercession, sacrament, all real. Because he sees it as, as an exorcist. So the reason I bring that up in, in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, like people at least are fascinated by and even accept that maybe someone could be possessed by an evil spirit. Like, maybe you've, you've either seen it in a movie, and I'm telling you it's real, or, or maybe you've seen it in person. Uh, it's, it actually happens. You can, be, you can be possessed by a demon. Okay, now, the good news is, like, you have to normally, anyway, do something to invite that in. Uh, you know, especially if you, if you are baptized. Uh, but, you know, this, this gets me. I, I go to bookstore. I go to Barnes & Noble all the time. And, um, you know, they got the game the game section, they got a Ouija board, a, a pile of Ouija boards in the game section as if, oh, here's a neat little toy. You can play Monopoly or Yahtzee or you can summon a demon. Yeah, that sounds like fun. 
No, this is real stuff, people. Play with the Ouija board. You you want to get a demon? That's because that's how you get a demon. You you invite the power of a demon in, and guess what? <laughs> More than happy to come. Oh, but but I wasn't really serious about it. I was just thinking it's a game. You know, it's just all fun. Talk to an exorcist. That's how you open the door to Satan. True story. Okay. I, every time I see the Ouija boards, like it. At Barnes and Noble, I like turn them over, hide them, put something else on top of them. Um, this this life of the spirit, the world we can't see, it's real, and that's why I don't mind talking about exorcisms with uh, the high school kids, because to, to some extent, if we can get our minds around uh, the spirit world is real, or even just that there is more to this reality of this world than just what we see, well, that that's a pretty good step, because if you can accept more to life than what I see, now now the whole life of faith opens up. You know, today, sadly, we reduce everything down to scientism. And I, I don't mean just science, because I love science. I'm an engineer. That's my background. I love science. But scientism is where we, we turn, like, science almost into a religion, where we say that the, the only things that can be true are, are things that we can experiment upon and, and improve through empirical or, or physical, tangible evidence. Well, where 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 do you prove that that's the only kind of truth that there is? I mean, it's just it's ridiculous. There there is a whole another world out there that isn't able to be experimented upon and is not tangible uh, because we call this spirit, and you can't see it, you can't touch it. But as the scriptures say, it's like the wind. Uh, you might not know where it comes from or where it's going, but you can you can feel it uh, when it comes, and and that's kind of how the spirit is. There's a whole world out there like that. And if, if you can recognize demons, then you can recognize the, the presence of all kinds of intangible things. Um, so the sacraments, how, how can Jesus be present as the Eucharist? Well, not everything is, is so easily seen or understood. Uh, so if you can be possessed by an evil spirit, if a, a demon can, can take over, how much... How much more the Holy Spirit? Think about that. We, we've seen people who their whole body is like taken over <laughs> with a, a, a demon so that they need an exorcist. But in baptism, the Holy Spirit comes. And, and not, to, not to overpower or take away freedom like a demon sometimes does, but rather to enliven, to, to give you greater freedom than you had before, greater power, to augment your life, to make it better. This is the presence of the Holy Spirit. So just as you might recognize the way a demon might possess someone, we're all meant to be, maybe possessed isn't the right word by the Holy Spirit, but receive the indwelling. Indwelling sounds better. Or as, as we spoke, when Mary conceived Jesus, the overshadowing uh, of the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing thing. Think of the power that, that comes from that. You get that in baptism. That, that's one of the reasons why, you know, water is poured and is supposed to flow over the, the head of the person. It's the way that the Spirit poured out. You're, you're washed clean, you know, as, as if the original sin were some kind of a stain. We speak of it that way. But it's not so much something that is taken away as something that is given. The, the infusion and dwelling of the Holy Spirit, you go from being a cute little adorable baby to being a child of God at your baptism. And, and so to, to signify that, you know, we, we even anoint the top of the head of, of a little baby with, with the sacred chrism, the same oil that will be used in confirmation. Or if the person is seven years or older and have the use of reason, they actually receive confirmation right then. And so we'll, we'll talk here a little bit sacramentally about what's, what's the connection with confirmation then and, and baptism. Um, so we got a couple questions on here. Uh, Aaron wants to know about um, comments on the Catholic Pentecostal event coming up in Topeka. Uh, good question. I haven't looked at that one yet. Uh, so my first parish actually was Mill Spear Heart of Mary in Topeka, where um, back in the early 20th century, uh, the, the entire Pentecostal movement basically began. There, there was a house on the property uh, owned by a man named Stone, uh, so the, the street to this day is, is Stone Stone Avenue. Um, the, the house is long gone. 
Uh, but in there, there was a college, and basically, Holy Spirit uh, apparently fell on a bunch of people praying. Pentecostal movement was born. I think my my rectory at the parish was actually built on top of what has come to be known Stone's Folly. It was a huge, elaborate mansion that got like torn down, and so it's known as Stone's Folly. But all the time when I was in Topeka, there were people coming to, you know, knock on the door and say, "Is this the place? Can can you tell me like where the where the the building was?" And like, you know, we we don't know, um, but it's it's right it's right there, most pure heart of Mary. So I, I assume that there's something like that because it's the anniversary of um, that original outpouring. I, I think I got a book on the shelf, uh, the Topeka outpouring, here somewhere. Uh, anyway. Yeah, I, I really do read all these. Oh, there it is. Look at this. So there, um, there is a picture of uh, Stone's Folly, uh, Topeka outpouring of 1901. So no wonder we're we're on an anniversary year here. So um, pretty interesting uh, stuff. So you can check that out if you want. Uh, the Topeka outpouring by. Uh, Larry Martin. So, check that one out. Uh, I assume that's what that's going to be about. Um, all right, so Susan wants to know, what about other churches which wait to baptize? Do their kids not have the Holy Spirit like the disciples of Christ? True statement, okay? Well, preface this. Jesus gave us the sacraments, okay? It, it's all over Scripture, you, you got to be baptized to, to receive the Holy Spirit, be a follower of Jesus. We don't make this stuff up. Baptism, we say, is necessary for salvation. It is the only way that one enters the life of Christ and receives the grace necessary for salvation. It is in baptism that everything that Jesus did on the cross, his saving passion, death, resurrection, all that he gained on the cross, it's not ours until he gives it to us. And the way he has chosen to give that to us is baptism. It is necessary for salvation. There is no other way we know of. So for people who know that, baptism is necessary. Now, there's also an important principle in sacramental theology. God is not bound to the sacraments. So he is, he's chosen to work this way. And, and for those of us that know it, uh, we have to do it. So, I mean, if, if I were to say, yeah, I know Jesus requires baptism for salvation, and that's, that's how I get it. But, you know, I just I don't like water. I'm just not going to do it. Or I'm not into those ritual things. I'm just not going to do it. You will you will not go to heaven. If you deny baptism when you know it's necessary, you will not go to heaven. But to say God is not bound to the sacraments means God is free to work outside the bounds of what he's created. I mean, it's, it's his system. Uh, we're not free to go against it, but certainly God's not bound by it. So if he he wants to give the gift of his Holy Spirit and his grace in a way outside the, the sacraments that he's free to do so. In fact, uh, originally in the Acts of the Apostles, that this question does come up because there's there's a, a group of people that Peter's preaching to, and they're not baptized yet, and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And he's like, whoa, what what's going on? And he has to come back and say, well, I, I had to baptize them then because, like, who am I to prevent people who God has chosen and given the Spirit to from being baptized? So I baptized them. Um, so God is free to work outside that system, but it is a big, big, big deal to put off baptism, especially, you know, people who think, well, you know, I, I'm going to let my kid decide, you know, I, I don't want to force, I don't want to force this on them. So uh, when they're older, they can decide what other possible important decision do you allow your two year old to make for themselves like that? You know, I, I'm going to let them decide if they want to eat Cheetos or vegetables every day. No, you, and that's something simple. You're not going to let your kid decide what they're going to eat when they're two years old. Why, why on earth would you think that somehow saying that baptism is so unimportant that it can be just arbitrarily delayed until adulthood, and somehow magically they become an adult, they're going to think, wow, yeah, baptism is really important. No, you, you've deprived them of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the grace of the Spirit for their entire youth. Uh, and then somehow magically, they're going to overcome everything that the world has to offer negative against God. 
and then magically make a choice for God later. I mean, I, so, sometimes people do, and they get baptized, you know, later in life. Um, the, the Catholic Church does not allow this option. It says in canon law, children are to be baptized as soon as possible, quo primum in Latin, uh, after birth, and, and now in the law it says within the first few weeks. In case you want to know what is as soon as possible, within the first few weeks. Because here's the deal, that cute little baby dies without baptism, and children often, you know, they're fragile after birth. We do not know that they go to heaven. Like, oh, but they're cute little babies, they haven't sinned, of course they go to heaven, God loves them. Um, no. I mean, sure, God loves them, but do we know that they go to heaven? No. In fact, the church teaches explicitly, we do not know. Now, what we say is we have reason to hope, but the only ordinary means by which we know that we can be saved and go to heaven is through baptism. So you don't put that off. That's really gambling. Uh, in A Beautiful Witness, I just, I just uh, right before I started the show, I was talking with the parish uh, coordinator, and um, I, got a, I got a baptism scheduled for next Thursday uh, for a little kid that's going to be born tomorrow. Perfect. There's parents who get it. Uh, and, and sometimes I get called to the hospital in emergencies to, to baptize a little baby who's in danger. Uh, and I actually confirm them, too, if they're in danger of death. Uh, so, again, we'll talk about what's confirmation. Uh, because, yeah, I'd confirm. Uh, in fact, I have confirmed a little baby who's uh, in danger of death. Um, so don't put off baptism. God's not bound by it, but we are. Uh, so keep that in mind. Necessary for salvation. That is when you become a child of God. And only children of God, friendship with Jesus, will be in heaven. Now, we've spoken before, people who through no fault of their own don't know Jesus and things like that, we can hope God has some way to, to bring them to heaven, but everybody in heaven, uh, there's only one God. One God, Jesus Christ, second person of that one God, and everyone will be Catholic in heaven. Talked about that before. Okay, so that's baptism. Uh, so what about what about confirmation? Okay, well, if we, if we get the, the Holy Spirit... In, in baptism, what, what's, what's this deal about confirmation? I mean, if you've been to a confirmation lately, and uh, or any time, uh, it is kind of the season right now. And uh, yeah, it's all about the Holy Spirit, receiving the Holy Spirit. We pray deliberately for the coming gifts of the Holy Spirit at, at confirmation. Like, well, if I already got the Holy Spirit at baptism, what happens at confirmation? Well, it's implied in the Word. Confirmatio. It means with strength. The words that the church uses to describe what happens at confirmation is a strengthening uh, and sealing of baptism. The, the gifts you got in baptism, you, you get all the gifts of the Holy Spirit in baptism. You know, sometimes in confirmation, we make these large banners with the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit, the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, as if that's what I get in confirmation. I, I, I get the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, not really. You get those at baptism, and they are strengthened in confirmation. Confirmation with strength. What you got in baptism gets strengthened in confirmation. So, what what's the big deal? And and you know why why then all this talk about. Um, adulthood in the faith. If, if you ask probably most people today, even those being confirmed, um, you know, what, what's the deal with confirmation? Well, that's when I become an adult in the faith. In, in my baptism, when I was baptized as a little baby, you know, my parents, my godparents chose that for me. But now I'm getting confirmed. And by golly, this, this is the day I choose the faith for myself. Horse feathers. It's not true. I don't think I've said horse feathers in a long time. I don't know. Baloney has nothing to do with confirmation. Confirmation is not about you choosing the faith, choosing God, becoming an adult in the faith. Like, nothing to do with it. In fact, confirmation from the early days in the church was not even really so much a separate sacrament from baptism. Confirmation happened in conjunction with baptism. Where do we get this from? Well, Jesus. Jesus goes to John to be baptized. See over my shoulder, there he is. You know, that's 
That's John and Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water, having been baptized. And what happens? The Holy Spirit hovers like a dove, dwells, is present. The Holy Spirit uh, is, is given in baptism. And then in the early church, again, a lot of the those to be baptized were adult converts originally. So how, how did it work? Well, I talked about this on, on Holy Saturday, so you can go back and check out the Holy Saturday uh, preview video from, from this last Easter. I go into great detail here. But essentially what happens is you are led to the baptismal pool, because it, it would be a, a sizable pool, okay? Stripped naked, anointed with, with oil uh, for strengthening, and then three times plunged into the water with the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then coming up out of the water, so you're you're dripping wet. Coming out of the the font, you are you are clothed with a white garment to show your new life, pure in Jesus. And then the bishop steps forward, and much as Samuel took a horn of oil in the Old Testament and poured it over David's head to make him a king, the bishop takes the vessel of sacred oil, pours it over top of the head of the person who was just baptized so that oil is running down all over the place. And then much in the same way that if you were going to seal a letter, you know, you would, you would like pour, you know, think red wax over it. And then you would press a, a signet ring, a, a ring with a, a coat of arms or a seal on it, or maybe a, a stamp. You press it into that, that moist flowing wax. It leaves the, the seal the impression, and then when the wax hardens, you can identify who sent the letter because it's it's sealed. So the person with oil instead of wax running all over their head, the bishop steps forward, and instead of pressing a, a ring or a stamp into the, the flowing oil, he traces the sign of the cross and says, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now you know why in confirmation that the words that the, the bishop uses when he signs someone and confirms them is be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's this this sealing thing about? Well, think again of the, the letter with the you know with the the wax on it. What happens when you seal that letter? Well, number one, it secures it. So it's 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 now protected. So that happens in confirmation. The gifts you were given in baptism are strengthened and protected by the official acknowledgement of the, the church. But, but also you are identified further now. It's no, it's no coincidence that, you know, it's the sign of the cross that's traced on the, the forehead in the, in the flowing oil. Okay? It, it happens at baptism too. Okay, when the little baby is brought into the church, you know, what, what name do you give your child? And, and what do you ask of God's church for the child? Well, baptism. I now trace the sign of the cross on your forehead. I claim you for Christ our Savior and trace the sign of the cross on your forehead. Invite your parents and godparents to do the same. This radical claiming with the sign of the cross is completed in confirmation when you are sealed. You are identified as belonging to Jesus. His cross is literally traced in the flowing oil on your forehead the way it would be stamped onto a letter. If I get a sealed letter, which... Obviously, doesn't happen as much today, but sometimes people do use sealing wax on a, a letter. I can look at it and I say, I recognize that coat of arms. That's the, that's the coat of arms of Pope Francis. This letter came from Pope Francis, and I can identify it because it's got his seal on it. Same way, you are identified as belonging to Jesus by the tracing of the cross in the flowing oil on your forehead uh, at, at baptism without the oil and then at confirmation when the bishop comes forward and says, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I said bishop, okay, because this is this is an important point. When Remember I said that, you know, confirmation has nothing to do with adulthood in the faith? Well, I'm going to talk now about kind of the, the difference between the Eastern churches and the Latin church, the Western church, and how we do confirmation. And this will further make abundantly clear that confirmation cannot be about adulthood in the faith. I've talked about the Eastern Catholic Churches before, so I'm not, I'm not talking about the Orthodox, who are not in union with the, the Catholic Church, although they do this the same way. 
but the Eastern churches, the 23 Eastern Catholic churches that are in union with the Pope, so they're fully Catholic, when do they get confirmed? The moment of baptism, okay? Well, right after. So in the Eastern churches, a little baby is brought to the church, and they are, you know, dunked three times in the water. I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then the sacred chrism is, is used to confirm them. They, they don't even call it confirmation. They call it chrismation because the oil is called chrism. Christos in, in the Greek we talked about means anointing. So literally, they are baptized, confirmed, and then given a little piece of the Eucharist uh, right then. So there are three sacraments of Christian initiation. They're called baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist in that order. That those are the three sacraments of Christian initiation, and they are are meant to happen in that order. And we're, we're going to talk more about that because the culmination of Christian initiation, the sacrament of sacraments, when you should be fully initiated, is when you receive the Eucharist. Now we've got this all out of whack, and here's why: because in the Western Church, so the Latin Church, and that's that's the bulk of the Catholic Church. Most of most Catholics are Latin Catholics. That that's what. You know, most of us around here are. We're St. Patrick. We're, we're Latin Catholic parish. Well, in the Latin church, originally, it happened just the way I said. You know, the, the bishop is right there at the baptism, and the bishop does the anointing after baptism. But pretty soon, the church got bigger, and the bishop couldn't be there to do all the baptisms. So the bishop says, okay, priests, you can do the baptisms, but... The, the anointing with chrism after the baptism, the sealing, I'm, I'm keeping that. Bishops need to do that because it was seen that the, the authority of the church to confirm the, the baptism, as it were, uh, that's the role of the bishop. And so in the Latin Western church, confirmation began to be uh, associated more as this is the intervention of the bishop, who used to be the one who did all the baptisms, but now the church is too big. The bishop is there to ratify your baptism, to give, as it were, more authority of the church to what happened in, in baptism. So he does the sealing. So to this day, when people think of confirmation, they, they would naturally think of, well, that's when the bishop comes. The bishop does confirmation. Well, Number one, not true in the Eastern churches. It's almost never the bishop who does chrismation. It's normally the priest because they're the ones doing the baptism. Uh, and even in the Western Latin church, priests are able to confirm. I said, I've, I've confirmed before uh, a baby in danger of death. And obviously adults, when, when adults become Catholic and they are baptized or are received into full communion, the law of the church uh, recognizes that these uh, sacraments, when adults come into the church, should, should stay the way they were in the beginning and be all connected. So it's actually required in the law that if someone is an adult, and this is anyone who has the use of reason, so if you're seven years old, you're presumed to have the use of reason, the law requires that when you are baptized, so I baptize someone, I confirm them immediately after. I, I take the, the sacred chrism consecrated by the archbishop, and I trace the sign of the cross on their forehead with the oil, and I say, be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is the sacrament of confirmation, and it is done by me, the priest. So it is, it is not a power that only the bishop has, but it is a, a power that is uh, reserved to the bishop as the ordinary minister, uh, except in specific cases where either the bishop designates someone. So the bishop could designate me to confirm anyone. In fact, that's going to happen here in a little bit. We've got some adult confirmations, and the, the bishop is going to designate the, the pastor here to do it. Also, from the law, a priest can confirm whenever he uh, baptizes someone into the faith or receives someone into full communion or in danger of death. So we kind of try to have it both ways a little bit in the Western Church. On the one hand, we split confirmation off from baptism because, well, we want the bishop to do it. On the other hand, there are cases where the priest can do it. So just kind of keep, keep that in mind. It's, it's, a little bit, uh, it's a little bit awkward. Um, but one of the, the things that was never foreseen or intended was that people would receive First Communion 
before they were confirmed. First Communion, to receive the Eucharist, should be, for everybody, the completion of their Christian initiation. This uh, got a wrench thrown in, in in the early 20th century with Pius X, uh, because people weren't receiving confirmation and, and Eucharist then until, like, high school. And so he rightly saw, um, we need to back this up. It would be better if children, soon after they gain the use of reason, be fully initiated and, and, and gain the benefit of receiving the Eucharist. He never intended that we would put confirmation after First Communion. This is a, a real modern kind of anomaly. Um, what does it mean to receive the Eucharist if you're not even a fully initiated Christian? Um, doesn't make any theological sense. So as often happens when things don't make theological sense and the meaning is not clear, uh, we give it a new meaning. And so this is where all the, well, what's confirmation about? Well, uh, if it's not um, completion of my baptism so that I can receive the Eucharist, because I already received the Eucharist, well, what is it? Uh, well, sacrament of adulthood. Yeah, that's what it'll be. Uh, now it's a coming of age ritual. But not since, not since AD 33 has confirmation been a coming of age ritual. But when you take all the real theology out of it, well, that's what you're left with. Uh, we try to fill in the gaps. Um, so we'll talk more about that. Feel free to post your, your questions on that. But I will bring this. Uh, the reason I, I, I talk about this, because obviously as a sacramental theologian myself, um, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a blunder. Uh, the way it's become what it is now. And part of the reason it is, well, if you hear all the time, you ask, well, why Why do we keep doing that? Well, because because we've turned confirmation into the sacrament of adulthood, a lot of times when, when people receive it, they think they've kind of graduated. And, you know, tonight is like eighth grade graduation uh, here at the church. So so what happens when you, you graduate? I'm done. So people get confirmed and they think, oh, I'm done. I'm an adult in the faith. And my my first adult decision, if, if that's what we're going to consider confirmation, you know, in, in eighth grade, my first adult Catholic decision will be to decide that I'm confirmed now and I'm done. I will now officially apostatize, basically, and fall away from the presence of the faith. I will not go to Mass anymore or receive the Eucharist because I really only came back in the first place to get confirmed because— well, I don't want to be a deadbeat Catholic who's never been confirmed. Uh, and so a lot of parents are, you know, terrible about handing on the faith, but by golly, we're going to we're gonna get the kid confirmed because otherwise I'm a bad parent if they don't get their sacraments. Um, so you roll all that up, and now people are like, well, you know, people stick around to get that sacrament. So, you know, if we, if we do confirmation like in second or third grade like we used to, people might leave. They might leave early, and they'd, they'd miss all that joy of instruction fourth through eighth grade. All right, it, it's all just ridiculous. Okay, if, if, if the only thing that's keeping people coming to religious ed is because I want to get a sacrament at the end, guess what? That doesn't work. <laughs> it, it doesn't work. People leave anyway. In fact, they leave with greater responsibility and bigger sin on their head afterwards. So not a good thing. Um, what, what should we do instead? All right, so here's what's happening now in a number of places, including like large significant places like the Archdiocese of Denver, you know, just to our, our West. Um, you might hear it referred to as the restored order of the sacraments of initiation, because again, the sacraments of initiation are meant to be received, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist in that order. So what do you do? Well, bishops like uh, Bishop Aquila in Denver, uh, and in other places. The list of, of dioceses that are doing this is growing. So you're, you're baptized, normally as a, a little baby, let's say. Then you get to the age of reason, which is presumed to be seven. So often we're talking second grade here. Uh, at that point, you would be confirmed. And at that mass where you are confirmed, now ready to be a fully initiated Catholic, you receive the Eucharist for the first time. And it all works very wonderfully. What does confirmation signify? Well, it's a strengthening of your baptism, but it signifies that you are now of an age and understanding that you are capable of receiving the Eucharist. 
what a great thing. That would actually be a good theological meaning of, of the sacrament of confirmation. Granted, it doesn't have to mean that because little babies get confirmed all the time. I've confirmed little babies. Little babies get confirmed as a matter of course <laughs> in the Eastern churches. But at the very least, if we're going to defer confirmation, all right, let's defer it until the age of reason, if, if, you, if you go that way. And then now that we're saying you've got the use of reason, well, assuming you also can use that reason to determine between regular bread and the Eucharist, then confirmation can mean I'm now able to receive the Eucharist. That would be a good thing for confirmation to mean. It means I, I am mature enough that I can now receive the Eucharist. And so the Eucharist then, the sacrament of sacraments, would in fact complete your Christian initiation. So um, uh, Misty's pointing out that uh, Bishop Strickland, so down in Tyler, Texas, uh, does this. And it's, it's over, I think, grown to at least like a dozen or so dioceses uh, right now. Uh, Kendall, like, yeah, restored order makes complete sense. Right. So theologically, sacramentally, no doubt. Baptism, confirmation, then Eucharist completes your Christian initiation. Why don't we do it? Well, people will leave. We got to keep this little carrot out there. And granted, I do see this. Okay. And I'm not denying this at all. People will show up to have their kid baptized because, well, that's kind of important. I don't want to be a deadbeat parent. Although these days, less and less people are getting baptized too. Uh, then first communion, <sighs> we're going to show up again in second grade. So seven years later, here we come back because now it's time for first communion. And if my kid doesn't get the first communion, I'll be a deadbeat parent. So by golly, I'm going to put them back in religious ed for second grade. Do they stay in religious ed for third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh? Oftentimes, no. Majority of the time, uh, probably no. If the only reason they're staying is for sacraments, what do they do? They come back in eighth grade for one more year of religious ed after being taught for their entire youth that really the faith doesn't matter. The family doesn't go to mass on Sundays, but oh, but these sacrament things, that's important because there's like a record of this. And I don't want my kid to be the one to say, yeah, my parents never had me confirmed. So by golly, you're going back to religious ed for eighth grade because we're going to get you confirmed. So I get my good Catholic card. Doesn't make any difference. No difference whatsoever. The, the, the sacrament of confirmation would, would be received validly, but we would say not fruitfully uh, because you got no life of faith. I mean, you've got the Holy Spirit, but you're not doing anything with it. Now, miraculously, can people get confirmed and all of a sudden start to take it seriously? Sure. Um, but how much better would it be? Here, here's the, the pastoral side of this. Everyone looks at pastoral like, oh, let's, let's put confirmation off to eighth grade so we keep people in religious ed longer. What about the pastoral implication of having kids go all those years, their formative years of their youth, without the full presence of Christian initiation, without the gift. If confirmation does something, you know, that's what we believe about all the sacraments. They're not just little rituals that are, woo, we feel good about ourselves. Confirmation is powerful. It literally means with power, with strength. If we believe that, if we believe that it actually does something, that it increases the power of the Holy Spirit, why on earth would we not want our kids to have that from the time that they're seven years old and can begin to start sinning, begin to start making the choice of whether or not I'm going to follow this Christian life? Because let's be honest, these people will say, oh, I'll let my kid decide when they get older. It's not a choice you make once and done. You've been making that choice. From the time you can reason, you've been making a choice. Is faith important or is it not? And if you don't have the full indwelling strengthening of the Holy Spirit that comes in confirmation, doesn't that make it less likely that some kid in the end is, is going to make it through all the temptations that come? Think, think about fifth, sixth, seventh grade. They're going to be long gone by that point. And could the gift of the Holy Spirit strengthening confirmation have helped that? Well, if we believe that the Holy Spirit is real, and that confirmation actually does something, let's do it at the moment that, that they first begin to need it, which is at the, the moment of the use of reason. The, the other key part about this is like to, to understand at a level that is necessary for confirmation, 
understanding the Eucharist is far more difficult. Okay, in order to be able to receive the Eucharist, you need much more maturity and understanding than you do for confirmation. Okay, a, a, a little baby uh, can receive confirmation with no knowledge whatsoever. I can confirm uh, a, a person who is, is in a coma in, at, at the, and they don't have to understand at all. I mean, I can confirm a, a child who's in danger of death long before they have the use of reason. I can't give the Eucharist to them, though, because the church requires. You have to have an understanding, and the church says, that you have to be able to distinguish that this bread is not really bread. This is Jesus. Okay, and, you know, to the extent that a, a seven-year-old can do that, hey, all the time we say that they can, and so we give them communion. If they can understand the Eucharist, they have more than enough maturity to understand to receive confirmation. So it's it's not even an issue of what confirmation is really about. It's it's what we've made confirmation into. Okay? So that that's a little bit on the restored order. And uh, it's interesting because in the rite of Christian initiation of adults, which I was talking about, so this is for anyone who's seven or older, um, it's like we, we throw out this whole idea of, well, confirmation is delayed. No, the church doesn't allow it to be delayed, except for a grave reason. And we sometimes kind of abuse that to say, like, well, I don't want my kid confirmed when they're seven. I want them to be confirmed with their class when they're in eighth grade, because I don't want them to stick out. Man, here, here's a little secret. Canon law, for all you people out there, you have a right to the sacrament of confirmation if you are seven years old. If your child has the use of reason, you have the right to go to your bishop and say, I want my child confirmed. I want them to have the strengthening gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Vatican has replied over and over to bishops, you cannot deny them the sacrament of confirmation if they have the use of reason and they request it. You can't say, bishop, that, well, we, here we delay until high school or we delay until eighth grade, so come back then. The Holy See. The, the Vatican, the Holy See, more correctly, has said, bishops, you can't do that. People have a right to the sacraments. If your kid is seven years old, you can have them confirmed. Now, the bishop may, you know, designate the, the priest to do it or whatever. I'd say, fine. You know, I, I want my kid to have that, that gift. And so this, this happens a lot in the, the homeschooling community where I've, I've had that happen a lot. Like, Father Sean, we, we get what confirmation is really about. I, I want I want my kid confirmed before they make their first Holy Communion. Good. You can you can ask it of the bishop, and he is to say yes. So says the Vatican. Uh, so uh, little little canonical tidbit there. Um, I, I could say you didn't hear it from me, but but you did hear it from me because I'm a canon lawyer. So I I I happen to know these things. Um, yeah, Misty is saying uh, that the the carrot idea of like, oh, hold the carrot out there of confirmation and it'll keep people in the faith. Yeah, she's like, not if they don't know what the carrot is. Exactly. And and quite frankly, if if we've delayed the life of faith until eighth grade, they don't even, they don't hardly know what Jesus is, yet alone the, the sacrament of confirmation. Um, okay, Diane Linder has a question. What about the little slap on the cheek being confirmed? Um, it used to be in the, the extraordinary form, right, of, of confirmation that after the bishop laid hands and anointed that he would lightly give a little slap on the cheek as kind of a, a little bit of a, a wake-up call, as it were, that, um, yeah, now uh, the, the strengthening is for something. Uh, you're, you're to go out, sometimes it's, it's referred to, to becoming a soldier of Christ, athlete of, of Christ sort of thing. Um, you're like, oh, see, Father Sean, that's why a seven-year-old can't be a soldier for Christ. The heck they can't. Darn right a seven-year-old can be a soldier for Christ. They're, they're fighting all kinds of battles, okay? Satan is real. The, the, the spirit world is real. And don't think that they're not going after your seven-year-old. They're old enough to sin. And most parents would say, I think my five-year-old's old enough to sin. You should see what he did to his little sister, okay? Yeah, seven-year-olds sin. I mean, maybe they're not going out murdering people, but they're learning. How do I say yes to God and no to Satan? You bet they need the strengthening of the Holy Spirit. So there's that whole pastoral side. People talk about, well, pastorally, it makes sense to delay it. 
No, pastorally, it makes no sense to deny people the sacraments when they're disposed to receive them. And and being of an adult age of, you know, 16 or something is not required of the sacrament. It actually has nothing to do with it. Now, full disclosure, the law in the United States says that the sacrament of confirmation is to be conferred from the age of reason until about 16. So there is plenty of room in there to do the traditional practice of confirming at seven, or the bishops are are allowed to make the norm to delay it until eighth grade or, or even high school. About 16 is the law for the upper limit. However, the Holy See has said, if those who are of a younger age and have the use of reason request it, the bishop is to say yes. So there you go. All right. So to, to recap, we've, we've talked a little bit tonight about the sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist. We are coming up on the great feast of, of Pentecost. Um, so let me just end by saying a little bit about some of those. Uh, someone mentioned a Pentecostal gathering there in Topeka. We often associate with the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and Pentecostalism, uh, some of the more dramatic uh, out, outward shows of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And, and these happen in Scripture. Uh, Jesus even and says, you know, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and and you're gonna you're gonna drive out demons. You're gonna lay hands on the sick, and they'll recover. You'll you'll handle serpents, and it won't be able to hurt you. You'll drink deadly poison, and it won't harm you. All what we would call the charismatic gifts of of the Holy Spirit, things that not everybody has. Like so, when you get the Holy Spirit at baptism, everybody has the same same Spirit indwelling them. But the outward manifestations, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit um, that are, are known as the charismatic gifts, some of these like speaking in tongues and, and things like that, um, those are particular manifestations of the Holy Spirit that are given differently to each person. And I, I should say that speaking in tongues part, uh, people sometimes hear about that. This is, um, it's not, it's not uh, what happened on Pentecost, and you'll hear it this, this weekend at Mass, it's the first reading, is that Peter goes out and he speaks, and notice it says, all those listening heard in their native language. It does not say that Peter spoke a bunch of different languages or that he babbled in some unknown language. No, Peter spoke, and he he probably spoke Aramaic, or or maybe he spoke Greek if he was speaking to a, a wide audience, but everyone heard in their own language. So the speaking in tongues that happened at Pentecost is a specific gift that allowed everyone to understand completely. And, and we see why that's a, a good gift. If you're going to preach the gospel and everyone speaks different languages, what a, what a blessed gift that the Holy Spirit allowed everyone to hear in their native language. When, when people often think of the charismatic kind of movement, speaking in tongues, it's, it's a, a babbling on that no one can understand. It, it's not even a real language. There's some precedent in St. Paul for maybe this is, you know, something spiritual, but... This is not what happened at Pentecost. This is not the gift of tongues that is referred to in Acts of the Apostles. Uh, this is a sometimes a, a babbling on that, that people just do on, on cue. And sometimes, it, you know, it's nice to just make, make sounds and make noises, and, and you can feel that maybe that frees you up for the Spirit to speak to them. Okay, but it's not the gift of the Holy Spirit that allows everyone to hear and understand clearly. Okay, that's a, a different kind of gift. And, and likewise, the other gifts, like there are some places where like, oh, it says you'll handle serpents, and they want, well, there's churches where like, I'm going to handle this serpent, and you get bit by a rattlesnake, and like, I'm going to be fine, the scripture says so, and they die, because the, the scripture doesn't say that everybody has these same charismatic gifts in the same way. Um, so keep that in mind, but the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, uh, wisdom, knowledge, fortitude, counsel, understanding, fear of the Lord, reverence, piety, these things— uh, those are all given when we get it. And in the manifestations, those fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, humility, self-control, those are signs of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So maybe we can talk more about that in the future. Tonight, I really wanted to get into the, the sacramental signs. It's going to be a beautiful celebration of Pentecost. I pray that you are strengthened. If you've been confirmed, feel that, that strengthening of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. If you've not been confirmed, which, let's face it, the delayed sacrament of confirmation until adulthood, what's really resulted is that now about well, the majority of Catholics never get confirmed because they get baptized. Maybe they make their first communion and then they disappear. The carrot doesn't work. And so most Catholics today are actually not confirmed. So if you're one of those people, contact us and we can help you. 
Okay, for the rest of us that have got the Holy Spirit, we've been strengthened. When you receive the Eucharist, you are re-upping again. Every time you receive the Eucharist, you say, this faith is mine. That's the sacrament of Christian maturity and adulthood. The Eucharist, every time you receive it, you renew the promises of your baptism. So when you go to Mass this weekend, give thanks for the Holy Spirit that was given to you in your baptism, strengthened in confirmation, and is fortified and nourished for the daily fight with the daily bread of the Eucharist. I hope you've enjoyed this little trip through sacramental theology tonight. Be back with you next week, post-Pentecost, and we'll talk about the octave of Pentecost and the ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit. So send your Holy Spirit questions in this week, and we'll pick it up there next week. Until then, be strengthened, be confirmed, and then receive the Eucharist, because that's where adults get the strength they need to live this life. And God bless you.